I look to cover 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 this morning. And so would you stand as I read God's word? As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have granted us Christ, that you have yielded your only son to us. As a demonstration of your love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that by your Spirit's presence now we can have confidence coming to your word that you would help us to see, that you would help us to know, that you would help us to hear, that you would replace doubt and unbelief with faith and true belief, that you would replace disobedience with obedience that you would take away idolatry and grant worship of the living God, that you would accomplish your will through your word this morning. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, today, would you speak to us? God of glory, Be near and speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So this is Paul, the apostle, writing to his young protege, Timothy. Um, Last week, this is a train wreck waiting to happen up here. Um, can I tell you a funny story? Well, before I get, this makes me think of it. Uh, I went to my, one of my years when I was at PC, uh, this is not, I don't have a script and this is not on the script. So, uh, just feel it as a preacher with wires behind me, uh, that I went to a church. I went to one on a mission trip during my fall break, my sophomore year, maybe I don't remember of college. And we went up to the Boston rescue mission. Uh, in the middle of Boston, and we stayed at the mission. And then, what on a Sunday we went to church. I think it's at Park Street Church, which is a famous—it's not a Baptist church, but it's a famous church right there in the middle of downtown Boston. And we went on like a Sunday evening service, and so they were trying to be like hipper, I guess. Uh, and so they had all of the band instruments up on the stage. It was a much smaller—at least in my memory—it's much smaller area than we have up here. And the pastor came up. And on his way, he, he was sitting down, you know, and on his way up, he came and he just, he caught something and just leg, I mean, legs in the air, full out, bought it, you know, right at the beginning of a sermon. I'm just thinking, Lord, please. I'm sure one day it's going to happen. But uh, anyways, maybe think of that. So Tim, Paul is writing to Timothy and he has, uh, just to give you background, he's sending him, he's, he's, he's appointing him as a, uh, an apostolic messenger, an apostolic emissary 
Timothy is not best understood to be uh, a, a pastor or a, an apostle himself, but he is functioning as a bridge between uh, the apostolic ministry of Paul and the local church ministry that needs some reviving work in Ephesus. And just a bigger bit of background, right? Ephesus was planted by the Apostle Paul during his third missionary journey. You could go read Acts chapter 19. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, as he's traveling back through, Paul warns the Ephesian church, the Ephesian elders, who are the leaders of the church, he warns them that savage wolves were going to arise, that false teachers were going to pop up, even from among their very ranks. He tells the, the elders of this church, watch out, false teachers are going to spring up. False teachers come from without, and also false teachers spring up as weeds in the midst of the leadership of this church. That Paul saw something, we don't know what it was, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's recorded for us in Acts 20, verses 19 and 20, that he saw, be forewarned, And now this is later on. So that's his third missionary journey. The end of the book of Acts, Paul ends up imprisoned in Rome and we leave him there. Uh, All the evidence points to Paul being released from that imprisonment. And he goes on to continue his ministry in a fourth undocumented, right? Not in the book of Acts, but a fourth missionary journey. And it's on this fourth missionary journey that he travels through and he is going to Macedonia And he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And it's on this fourth missionary journey that Paul writes to Timothy and his prediction has come to pass. So this is A.D. 62 to 64 ish. Uh, I could unpack why that's why that's the window, but you don't want to hear that. Go read a book. It's cool. Or I can tell you, but it's Nero dies in 68. Paul is martyred under Nero. Uh, He's released from prison early 60s. So somewhere between there, Paul ends up imprisoned again in Rome and beheaded for his testimony of Christ. So we think that he wrote this uh, early to mid 60s. uh, And then he wrote the he wrote Second Timothy while he is imprisoned in Rome at the very end of his life. Okay, so this is after the book of Acts and he has sending Timothy or he's appointing Timothy, leaving him in Ephesus for one reason. There is one principal cause for the book of Timothy, first Timothy. There's one reason that Paul is writing to Timothy. It's because there are these false teachers that have arisen in the church. They're teaching, obviously, fault. There's, there, so that they would, I'm leaving you in Ephesus, verse three, that you might instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. If you've ever heard the word uh, heterodox, uh, that that first phrase is strange or different. Uh, And this is the word that he uses. He uses a strange teaching. It's one big word. So what's the nature of the strange teaching, the strange different doctrine? And how what is Timothy to be about? At the very beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul is driving a wedge between true and false, between true ministry. What does true gospel ministry look like? What what are the true fruits of the gospel? And here are false teachings and what they result in. If false teachers are the principal cause or the principal occasion of the book of 1 Timothy... 
The gist of it is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has practical, visible fruit, both in individuals and within churches. The gospel of Jesus Christ has visible, practical fruit in the lives of both individuals and of churches. So the principal cause and the central thrust of the book, false teachers, the gospel bears fruit. He defines the strange doctrines later on. And so we'll get there eventually, but I want to just reference it because it'll be a little while before we get there. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, same word, a different doctrine and that do, and does not agree with the sound words. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness He is conceited and understands nothing into verse four. And so the strange doctrines are ones that are they're they're different than and they they are contrasted with the teaching of the Lord Jesus and the doctrine that conforms to godliness, that there's a certain healthy teaching, gospel teaching that leads to fruit in life. And what these false teachers are known for, and nowhere does Paul say, here are the false teachers, they're, they're these guys. I mean, we get some of those guys at the end of chapter 1. But they're these guys, and this is all that they're teaching. We have to kind of hint around at what he's getting at. But we see that they are obsessed with myths and endless genealogies in verse 4, which give rise to speculation. Uh, they are also, they're fruit of some men, verse 6, Straying from these things, we'll talk about those things in a second. Straying from these things, they have turned aside to fruitless discussions. So they're, they, they don't know anything. They're only speculating. They have no fruit either in word or in life. And in fact, their false teaching only brings forth arrogant ignorance or ignorant arrogance. Whatever, whichever one you want to uh, Emphasized there in verse 7. So these false teachers, they are impotent for knowledge. They, what they are preaching, it seems to be centered on, on some, some um, aberration, some difference with the law of God. Well, as we see at the very end of verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. So they're, they're importing Jewish ideas. They're probably bringing in some compromising Greek philosophical ideas. And they're putting them all in a cauldron, a theological pot. And they're stirring them around and then trying to serve those within the church. And this is particularly alluring because it uses Bible language. Right? They want to be teachers of the law. So they're coming and saying, Moses said this. Or maybe Isaiah said this and Jeremiah and this happened with Nehemiah and the psalmist opened this up and and they're taking the words of God, compromising them within their cultural context and then serving them to the people of God. And what it's leading to is spiritual apathy, indolence and worthlessness. Or another way to say it, God's people are shriveling on the vine. Because they are receiving false teaching. And this is a hard thing to pitch to you and to our culture today because we generally live in a theologically anemic culture. Not just like anemic, but like disdainful. 
We, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear the difficult things of the Bible. Not even the difficult things. We don't even want to hear the secondary or third level things. Just give me enough to get to heaven. Pastor, what can I know and what, <clears throat> what don't I do so that I don't go to hell? We want to know the line of faith and practice. And, and so what we've ended up with is a Christian, Christianity of lowest common denominator. Or a theological minimalism. Well, we can all agree on this walnut. Maybe. And too often, that's how we've structured churches. And we've structured conventions. Denominations. And preaching ministries. But theological anemia is actually a plague that has cut out our feet in the face, not just of cultural winds but of accommodated gospel messages. What do I mean? That we are inundated. And I mean like tsunami level inundated with false teaching that abounds. And it abounds with all the common ways that truth is spread. TV, print, media, social media. You get on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram... Anybody and their dead grandmother is a theologian all of a sudden. And they can speak authoritatively because they have a Bible in front of them. They have no accountability. They don't answer to anyone for what they teach. And they're pouring these things out there with a level of, of, of perfection or a level of beauty in their presentation. And where it's a funny meme, maybe. And it gets passed all around. And then all of a sudden, the Christians who have been brought up on spiritually anemic teaching, they don't know what to do with that. And they say, that sounds nice. So these false teachers, they're known, they, they actually don't spread knowledge. They pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And maybe the, most, the best way that we can apply this to us is that there are, not two, but they're surrounding us competitive stories. Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, uh, who is, it's an f- ethics book, but he has this great first page, almost first couple pages. And, but his whole point is in those places is that you don't know what is right and wrong until you know what story you're a part of. You don't know what's right or wrong until you know what story you're a part of. And dear ones, we have been suffering for decades in, a, in the American church under redefining stories. That you find yourself in some story. You derive your meaning from some story, from some narrative. No matter how much post-modernity wants to tell you that's otherwise, that you find, if, if, you, if you believe that ultimately your ancient ancestor is some sort of salamander that transitioned from an, an aquatic environment into a semi-aquatic environment, then all of a sudden, you might begin acting like that finally. If I believe, that all of this is simply the result of biological chance, natural selection. And that's all that has made us come to this point. At some point, when we keep force-feeding those pills down people's throats, they're going to start acting like natural selection is, well, natural. And then all of a sudden, hum- human life is treated 
as something that is expendable upon your convenience. Do you understand what I'm saying? Apply it. You can apply it to the ends of the spectrums. Apply it to the youngest of the young and to the oldest of the old. And you can look into our, go read the newspaper. It's either a clump of cells or it's a useless old windbag in a nursing home. Now, we don't believe that because we have a different story. We have the true story of all that is that God is the father and the maker of all. He is the almighty God, the creator of all things. And that he has made humanity in his own image. And so from conception and to the grave, people have a particular and a unique significance and value. And that's just one subject, but where the story that you're believing shapes the world in which you live. And so they are selling not just particular truths, but they're selling defining narratives. And in that narrative here of all, all these corrupted truths. Pay atten- nor pay attention to min- endless genealogies. Myths and genealogies, these ways of defining themselves. And it leads to speculation. Or it leads to an uncertainty about things that ought to be certain. We, we don't know anything about that. Sarcasm is biblical. Okay, it's in the Bible. Uh, and I just used it. We know all about that. We know nothing but speculation in our culture. The one thing that we do know is that we don't know. You could go from what makes a family, how children are born, man, woman, marriage, family, children. You could go to the demonstratively, here is a man and here is a woman. And all of these things are just undercut in our cultural milieu right now. We don't know that. We don't know what our eyes tell us. We don't know simple biology or chemistry. We don't, we just don't know. And it's up for you to decide. You are the captain of your ship, the master of your fate. Be a pomegranate. And realize your dreams. And I know that's silly. And I don't want to make light of people who are actually struggling with gender dysphoria. That's a thing. Okay? But when our culture just says, you just define it. That's speculation, dear ones. And all we were doing is that we're centering meaning, purpose, and authenticity on the individual in such a way that the individual cannot define it. You do not exist simply as one speck of humanity in a great sea. But you are made for connection with God. You're made for connection with one another. And you're made for connection with the world around you. But what story are you believing? Where did you come from? Why are you here? I always get a trip out of the... It hasn't been in a while, but you see a movie or a TV show and they, they act like the meaning of life is this like grand mystery that we could never ever figure out. And then the, your meaning is your meaning and your meaning is your meaning. 
And that happens when you unplug yourself from the God who has made you. Then, of course, you're the definition of your meaning. But if you begin to believe the real story of the God who created the heavens and the earth and he made you, then your meaning is inextricably linked to him. And it is a function of sinful rebellion to try to find our meaning elsewhere. And so, in fact, these false teachers, they're not, it might be, it might sound good. They might have a convincing presentation. But it actually robs people of any sort of certainty necessary for living life. It's very much like the culture in which we find ourselves. It's not only impotent for knowledge, but it's impotent for progress. The watchword of our day. It's not the olden times. It's 2022. We've progressed past this. Past, past what and to what we don't know. But it gives rise, these myths and endless genealogies give rise to mere speculation rather than what we ought to be about. Rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. Your Bible might say the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Or it might say God's plan, which is by faith. So we're... Myths and endless genealogies are setting individuals out to find their own way, to speculate about their own ends without any degree of certainty. The Christian gospel leads us in a different direction that we see that God is doing something in this world. That myths and the endless genealogies, the false stories and the false narratives that we are being pumped They don't actually bring about progress. They don't actually bring about new creation and new heavens and new earth. They don't bring restoration to anyone. It only leaves a barren wasteland behind it. As we see later that it's desolate, fruitless discussion. But the administration of God, his plan in the world, that God who made the heavens and the earth saw where sin entered in. Where our first parents chose to rebel against God, and every single one of us have bought into that same lie since. And that God has not left us in our sin, but that He has sent His only Son. The jewel of heaven has been delivered to us and for us, that we might be pulled out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And Jesus came preaching, repent and believe. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. There is an administration. There is a stewardship of God's plan that God's kingdom has come into this world and God's kingdom will continue to grow in this world. And it only grows as God's people walk by faith and not by sight. It is by faith that we get about God's business. And that when we plant ourselves That God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God has demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that everyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, will be saved. And then we look to the end of the book. That all of the brokenness and the rottenness and the sin and the sorrow and the muck and the mire of this world will finally be done away. As the kingdom of God is fully realized. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. 
And then we don't need a son. The glory of God is our son. Dear ones, that is the administration of God. Where he is bringing us from creation through the fall by redemption to a new heavens and a new earth. But it's by faith. And Paul tells him in verse 5, our, our ministry isn't like that speculative, self-centered, fancy-sounding ministry. But the goal or the end or the aim of our instruction or commandment is love. That while the false teachers are all about the speculation, they're all about the theological empty talk, the Christian gospel is about changing your heart that you might love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you would love your neighbor as yourself. It arises from a heart that's made purified. It's pure heart. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in spirit. That it arises from a heart that is made pure. Our hearts that were once the abode of darkness, sin, malignancy, spiritually, they have to be renewed by the power of God through the gospel. Love for God does not arise from a natural heart. It does not arise from a heart that just tries harder and does better. True love for our neighbor doesn't arise from simply a natural heart. But we need a change of heart. The prophet Jeremiah said it. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. You cannot trust your heart. Jesus said that out of our hearts arise adulteries and murder and strife and contention. That the heart is the root of our problem because our hearts have become calcified and rotten in sin. And so when Jesus comes to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and he says, you must be born again. That's the message to us. If you're going to know the administration of God, God's plan in this world. And if you're going to love God and love other people as you're meant to be, truly and fully and freely, then dear one, you need a new heart. And from a pure heart, I believe the way this is structured, that the other two flow from a pure heart. You have a good conscience, that your conscience, that, that inner dialogue that would either sweep your sins under the rug or continually condemn you. You either want to excuse yourself or condemn yourself that your conscience, because God has come in and made your heart clean. He's removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And now your conscience can say that even though I have sinned, Christ has died. Who then will bring a charge against God's elect? Jesus has died. More than that, he has risen and he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Romans chapter 8. My conscience is clear, not because I'm so great, but because Christ has died for me. And the Spirit has come and made me alive. And a sincere faith. The word sincere there can literally mean an unhypocritical faith. This is the childlike faith that when all other things are gone, you lean upon Christ. You have no other dependencies. You have no other thing that you are trusting that's going to get you to where you want to go. No other thing that you're trusting that's going to make you right with God, but Christ and Christ alone. An unhypocritical faith, a hypocritical faith walks by sight, by what you see, by what you're told in this world. 
An unhypocritical faith takes God at his word and says, yes, Lord, I will follow. I've already mentioned in verse six, their fruitlessness and that they want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're talking about, what they're saying on these matters or about that which they're making confident assertions. These false teachers, which really ought to be contrasted with Timothy. The picture that we get of Timothy is a young man who's rather timid. We particularly see that in 2 Timothy, but he's young. He might be a little shaky, but he is coming with a powerful gospel. And then you bump that against these guys, these false teachers who are full of bravado. They're full of self-confidence. They dress the part. They speak the part. And dear ones... Do not judge by outward appearance. You can't see the heart, but you can hear what a preacher says. You can see what a book says. You can understand with discernment what is the the story, the narrative behind this thing that this person is telling me. Do not, do not, do not disdain Humble humility and humbleness in the sharing of the gospel. It is not the people who have the best social media that you ought to follow. It's not the people with the biggest platform or the crispest presentation. But for you, the people that you must follow are those who are, who is it that is close, closest to the word of God? who has lashed themselves to the mast of God's word, saying, I will sink or I will rise as God's word does. Now, we strive to have that sort of ministry here. But I know you guys get hit with everything. If you pay attention, you'll get hit with all sorts of things. All these assumptions will come forth even if you just read the newspaper or you listen to the radio news. Whether conservative or liberal, their undergirding assumptions are going to come to bear on how they understand the world around you. And you must lash yourself to love that comes from a changed heart, a pure heart before God, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't follow the bravado. Follow the Christ who made himself nothing, walked the road bearing his cross, and was displayed in open humiliation to bear the judgment for your sin. Do not be scared to be disdained for his name in this world, but pure heart that unleashes true love in this world. May God develop that heart in us, a heart for him, a heart for our neighbors, Because he has so loved us. May we love him. May we love one another. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would have mercy as we come in prayer. If there are any here who they've been following the the myths and the endless genealogies, they have not been content with solid biblical Truth. They have not been content with the gospel, but they have sought out 
strange teachings. Or they have been their own guide and arrived at strange beliefs. Would, they help, would you help them to see that not only do those things destroy their lives, but Lord, it destroys their connection, their relationship with you. And for some here, I pray that as they consider what story are they believing, that if they've been buying into a false narrative about the world and themselves and you, that you would bring them to a point of repentance, a change of mind, a change of thought that leads to a change of life, and that they might believe simply, sincerely upon Christ and Christ alone. I pray that you would hedge in your people with protection, not just from physical harm, but Lord, the adversary wishes to do more grievous harm to us than take our physical lives away. Our adversary would see us damned in hell and delight over it. And our only hope, our only deliverance from him, the world, the flesh, is Christ. So, Lord Jesus, would you become ever more present and ever more precious to us. That we would be a people who adore you. A people having been cleansed from our sins. Worship freely. And live in the shelter of your hand. Have your way, O Lord. And work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.